it's two-thirds great. It's on a shoestring budget, like pizza money they made this movie on. This is the scariest movie I've ever seen because it just hits exactly everything I am personally terrified by. Plus, it just it just feeds into that feeling that we Americans have that Australia is out to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. We are back, as if you couldn't tell, doing Fright Club Live at the Gateway Film Center, High Street, Columbus, Ohio, in the heart of the Ohio State University, where we are the second Wednesday of every month, and we love it, and especially this month, because we have so many exciting things going on. We really do, and it's actually been kind of a long break, longer than usual, because we kind of, we switched platforms, we started something new, we got lazy, we took vacation, basically we just didn't do anything. Also, I think (laughs) we wanted to let a lot of people get over the last Fright Club Live, (laughs) because we showed We Are the Flesh, and we knew going into it that not everybody would like it. Not everybody liked it, George. That's right. No. (laughs) No. You were correct in that assessment, but uh, that's, that's all right. We go out there on a limb a little bit, yeah. and that was certainly one of them, but uh, we, we're glad that everybody's back, and uh, man, we we got so many people to thank right away. We want to say thank you to uh, Cicely from yes, the Owens Group do. once again, because yeah, we, we she took us axe throwing she a little did. bit earlier today, which I think now will be the way we get ready for every Fright Club Live. <laughs> did some axe throwing. One oh. of us was good at it. Well, you it were, wasn't you me. You were all right. You were all right. It wasn't um, me. But that was all to get psyched up for the new movie, uh, Fox Searchlight's new one called Ready or Not, which is coming out on the 23rd. Well, we get to see it Monday. Right. And she loaded us down with a lot of T-shirts that we've been giving out here. And by the way, if you ha- didn't get one, we've got plenty down here. If you want to pick them up after the uh, movie tonight, we've got uh, plenty to give away for you. So Ready or Not uh, T-shirts and, yes, passes, passes to the screening. The, that's so right. We were very much looking forward to that. From everything that we hear, it's awesome. Yeah. We're, uh, well, Cicely has seen it, and she's very excited for yeah. us to see it so we can all talk about it on Tuesday. Right. Yeah, and, of course, you can look for our review on madwolf.com and all our social media posts. So so that was a lot of fun, and we also have – we're so excited because the movie we're showing tonight, of course, is Hounds of Luck. Which has been – I think this this is at least the third, maybe the fourth time this film has made one of our podcast lists because it's just a brilliant – unnerving, incredibly well-made film that mm-hmm. everybody should see. Yes, and we were lucky enough. Come on in. Hey, come on in. Hi. Uh, we were lucky enough to talk to the writer-director, Ben Young. The Lock- nicest man in the world. He's ben so Young great. is the nicest man in the entire world, yeah. I swear to God. Uh, he called us from Australia. He did? You know, on man s- from this, the future. This past Sunday evening, and it was Which his was Monday, Monday morning, morning. Mm-hmm. so we talked to him about how it is living in the future. <laughs> and so anyway, we, we got a nice interview with Ben that we're going to include in the final edited version of the Fright Club podcast, which will be should be live on Monday. But we just thought for fun, we're going to air a, a couple of little segments right. of that uh, here tonight when we talk about Hounds of Love or when we don't talk about Hounds of Love because we don't want to spoil anything for anybody. But we thought you might like to hear a few comments from the writer director himself. So right. we'll get to that coming up. But uh, you know what? Once again, we got into this all fired up and forgot to mention that she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from madwolf.com. So thanks again for coming out. <laughs> Appreciate that as always. So um, yeah, the topic tonight is mm-hmm. missing persons. Yes. Which is actually, I mean, I think it makes sense that it's a pretty common topic for horror movies because whether you're the person who's missing or whether you're the person who is missing somebody, it is a terrifying idea. And it's been done a lot, and it's been done really effectively a lot of times. So what we were looking for um, for this list were films where it's really the primary topic of the film. 
So if you look at, for example, It or It Chapter 2 that's coming out, that's kind of a, it's, you know, you're going to see uh, missing posters all over. It's a great movie, but it isn't like really the main primary idea for the film. Also, and I, I didn't leave it off the list because George gets annoyed with me when I put it on the list. The Loved Ones has a missing persons subtext going on. <laughs> I love it when she just blames everything by because George gets annoyed with me. <laughs> Are you tired of talking about the loved ones, You George? know, I really like the movie. Okay. I do. I don't okay. like it as much as you do. But, uh, you know, if you wanted it on the list, I'm sure it would be on there. Well, there is a movie George was hoping to see on the list that I nixed. Megan is missing? That's right. Yeah, uh, I know. I could tell. Uh, when you talk about missing persons movies, uh, Megan is missing and ones that really strikes a chord in people. Yeah. It really does, because it's disturbing. Yes. Um, it is disturbing. I think I did like that movie better than you did. I can't say, looking at this list, I'm not sure I would have put it on the list above any of these movies, though. But I did I did like it better than you. It is, it is quite disturbing. It is. No, it is. And it's not like I dislike the film or I wouldn't recommend the film. Um, but I thought that the, the, the five that we come up, came up with, and we do try to skip fuzzy mass on, math on the live. And why do we do that? Just say it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not because you make me. <laughs> That's not why. It's I'm. It because must be my idea. George gets annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because we have to keep to the time. Honey. That's right. That's have why. To keep to the time. That's We're right. on a schedule. Um, and then one that neither of us likes, but does uh, is a pretty famous one involving missing persons, is Cannibal Holocaust, which is obviously it's a very famous film, and we wanted to at least point it out that it like the entire idea is missing persons, but. Um, I don't think either one of us would really. Yeah, we're not big fans. No, not big fans not of Cannibal fans Holocaust. Of it, no. And then another one that I think not a lot of people have seen, and it's worth seeing. It's a very low budget movie. It's called Absentia, and it's two thirds great. as on a shoestring budget, like pizza money. They made this movie on. I don't love the third act, and that's one of the reasons why. Uh, also, I think we have a pretty solid list, but I like to mention it because I don't think a lot of people have seen it. Absentia, and it's worth seeing. Uh, really quickly, we should say the next Fright Club podcast will be back in the studio, mm -hmm. and we're going to have a special guest, Jen Dreadful. Yes, our, our, our friend from Cali. That's right, who we just got to meet a we few did. weeks ago when we, we were did. out there. We Jen, out there. Jenny and Albert, her husband, they're great people. And, and she just she recently joined uh, our friend Phantom Dark Dave's podcast, Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. Mm -hmm. She's now the co-host. So um, Dave isn't going to be able to make it, but Jenny's going to sit in and we're going to talk about, and it's actually Dave's idea, so I kind of feel bad we're stealing it, gas stations. That's a good topic. Gas station horror. That's a good, that yeah. should be fun. That should, that be, should good. be fun. Yeah, I'm looking, for, looking forward to seeing what you got for that. And then the next Fright Club Live, a month from now, we're going to be showing, you told me and I already forget. Oh, the, the Last Circus. That's right. The Last Circus. Yeah, yeah. So if you haven't seen it, you must. And if you have seen it, if you haven't seen it on a big screen, you're missing something because yeah. between... You know, the black and white to color and then just the circus antics. Oh, my God. It is a great movie to watch on a big screen. Exactly. So uh, so that'll be fun. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. We've got five to talk about missing persons. So let's jump in. Let's do you it. want to do that? Yeah. We're going to start uh, 2007 in an abandoned house in Poughkeepsie, New York. Murder investigators uncover hundreds of tapes showing decades of a serial killer's work. Poughkeepsie tapes. Today, police made a shocking discovery in Poughkeepsie. Do you mind if I film this? I'm making a little movie about my trip. Yeah, this movie has a really interesting backstory because even though it is credited as, as 2007, 
for a long time it was really hard to find yeah. and hard to see. In fact, I remember when we saw it, I think it was because we put out on social media or something that we hadn't seen it, and somebody got us a bootleg of a bootleg <laughs> of a bootleg, didn't we they? We would never do that, George. I'm sure you're misremembering. We would only <laughs> legally watch a film. <laughs> Um, it, it, it is. Well, that a, happened so to a came, friend of ours, though, That's didn't what it? it was. That's what it was. That's what um, it was. It was not theatrically released originally, and then uh, it had some trouble finding distribution even for home entertainment for a long time, and it gave it kind of a cult following. I'm not sure what the what the deal was, you know? I mean, there was, there, there's almost no blood in it. I mean, there's very little. It's incredibly disturbing, though, and it's uh, John Eric Doddle who went on to do Quarantine and As Above, So Below, mm-hmm. Devil. Ooh. And, um, but, you know, two out of three and bad. And what he's done, he's really packed a lot into a very small space because it, it it's part found footage, not entirely found footage, kind of part police procedural. But uh, the police find, like, an entire, like, room full, hundreds and hundreds of these tapes of of the serial killer who is filming himself learning to be a good serial killer. And uh, a, a massive section of that is him and his kidnapping victim and eventual protege, Cheryl Dempsey. Poor Cheryl Dempsey. It's an incredibly disturbing film about sort of that relationship. The fact that they really don't show you very much about what happens actually works to its advantage, but like in Jaws. I mean, the less you see, the more freaked out you are. Yeah, and it was shot in just over two weeks. And it has a real guerrilla filmmaking feel. Yeah, it does. Uh, part of because the character is filming himself. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it also reminds me of a couple other movies that we've shown here at Fry Club. One is the last horror movie. Yeah. And that reminds me of Man Bites Dog yeah. uh, in a little way as well. It doesn't have that black comedy effect uh, to it, but it's really unnerving it is. In, a, in, in a strange way because you're right about it being hard to find for so long that you really don't know why. I don't think this story has really ever come out exactly as to why they pulled it. No, but it, it garnered a lot of notoriety mm-hmm. because of that. It became sort of like a, ooh, we're not supposed to see it. And so I think that when it was finally available, it, it really had an immediate cult status. Yeah. But it's one of those movies that I think is entirely, that's worthwhile. It is a really well-made, incredibly indie film. And it, and it just leaves you sort of... Not, not to the degree. See, this is why I don't like Megan is missing as well. This is a film that I feel like does what that was trying to do. Only this does it better. Mm-hmm. And I believe someone has told me that this is on the list for Fright Club Live this year. Are we not showing this? We are showing it. We're Ooh. showing it. Um, 2020. So we're going to show it next year. Yes, 2020 Fright Club. Year. So mark your calendars <laughs> accordingly. We do, in fact, have all of 2020 mapped out. So. <laughs> and she says we. Uh, it's 2007, <laughs> number five on our list. The Poughkeepsie tapes. Did I pronounce it right? You did. All right, yay. <laughs> Let's go up to uh, number four. And this was from just uh, a couple of years ago. It is a passionate holiday romance leading to an obsessive relationship when an Australian photojournalist wakes up one morning in a Berlin apartment and is unable to leave. Berlin Syndrome. I don't want this to end. I wish I could stay. I was actually gonna go. Andy, what is going on? You said you want to see? Open the door! We are a team. There's nowhere for me to go. This is one that kind of snuck up on me. 
and because um, I, I, I had not been much of a fan, to be honest, of Teresa Palmer before I saw this. And she's just flat out amazing. She really is. In this movie. And it's uh, it's a movie, you know, she she goes to Berlin and she, you know, as you see in the trailer, she strikes up a romance with totally the wrong dude. I mean, the movie is really uncomfortable. It's profoundly uncomfortable because it's not sort of ashamed to dive into the way that the, their relationship shifts and changes the longer she's trapped in this apartment. And she maneuvers that incredibly well. Yeah, she, uh, Teresa Palmer, described this as one of the most transformational experiences of her life. And it's a case where, like you, I was never really impressed with her much as an actress, and this one just totally turned my head. Uh, She's so good in this movie and so committed and so raw in the performance. And one of the things that's cool about this movie is because you've got the two of them in this psychological game, but then the on the other layer of the movie is a mystery as someone is maybe finding out about her and where she is and how to rescue her. Mm-hmm. And that is very engaging as well. It so is. I think the, both of those two things eventually come to a head. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, I did too. And uh, uh, Sean Grant wrote this and he wrote The Snowtown Murders, which we showed in Fright Club last year. Uh, and I think that there are some similarities. Uh, I don't think everybody would consider these horror films, but they're so unnerving, they're so disturbing that that's that's where I situate them. And they're very spare mm-hmm. in the way um, that they're put together. But this was directed by Kate Shortland, who is about to direct Black Widow. Yeah. Uh, but we love her from uh, a film she did called Lore. Lore in ago. 2012. Really yeah. small film, not a horror movie, but uh, I would recommend it, especially if you've seen this and, and like her work. I really enjoyed that one called Lore. But, uh, yeah, this one, like you, it kind of snuck up on me. Wasn't expecting a whole lot, but it, it, it really is effective. Yeah. And that's why it's number four on our list of missing persons horror from 2017. Moving up to number three, this is from back in 1988. It's Rex and Saskia, a young couple in love on vacation. They stop at a busy service station, and Saskia is abducted. After three years and no sign of her, Rex begins receiving letters from the abductor. It's the original The Vanishing. That's one we could have used for the gas station horror. Um, and I remember this. Am I correct in this? We saw this. We rented it at Blockbuster back in the day. Probably. Did, did we not? Uh, yeah, yeah, we probably did. And I did. can say that even if the Russians are listening. It's okay. <laughs> uh, and it's, of course, the original because it was remade. Same, same director, same writer, remade but it in 93 in English language. Big, yeah, big a lot of pulled punches. Yeah, um, so let's stick with this one. Um, it's, uh, first of all, it's driven by that lead performance, and that, oh. guy's, and that guy is great. Yeah, I'm not even going to pretend. Bernard Pierre Donadieu. Bernard Pierre Donadieu. I like that. Thank I will, you. I will counter by saying the Poughkeepsie tape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. I mean, he's just flat out amazing as, as the psycho killer. And I think for me, that's what's the most unnerving about this film is how he's easily the most interesting uh, character in film, and I love that in a villain. And he's so awkward that he's almost endearing, even though the only thing he's doing is explaining to you exactly how he went about what he considered to be the most heinous act, the most heinous act he could think of, because he tells you right off as he was t- as he's telling the boyfriend, I am a psychopath and a claustrophobe. And yet the guy gets in his car. Yeah. He's like, I'll, I can tell you what I did to your girlfriend, but I'm not going to. I'll do it to you. And if, you, if you're that interested, get in the car, and I'll do it to you, too. And he yeah. gets in the car. The fuck, man? <laughs> and I guess the actor, too. And what was his name, by the way? Bernard-Pierre Donadieu. Hey, hey, hey. He would 
he picked fights, intentionally picked fights with people on the set so that people would hate him and he would get more into that character. Or, that, or he claims that and he's just a dick. <laughs> just get into my car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he is he's really effective and the movie is so, it's well shot and well paced and it, it leads to such a better ending than oh the remake has. Let's leave it at that. Yes, uh, Just leave it at that. But And actually the uh, writer, the director, Tim... Crabby, or is he? He's the yeah, writer. Yeah, he is the writer. He wrote yeah. the novel, and then he wrote the screenplay. As well. Yeah, and he he was inspired by a story uh, on a newspaper article that he uh, read about a female tourist who disappeared from a bus trip after stopping at a service station. So he was spurred to write it, and then later he was he couldn't get it out of his head, and he did some research and found out that in that story, the woman was just like found a day later. Oh, and, good. And everything was fine. But it spurred this yeah. great idea. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's an idea. It's kind of a premise you can find in a lot of movies, really. Oh, sure. Back, back, even going back to Hitchcock and The Lady Va- Vanishes and oh, things yeah. like that. But it's really done well here. Oh, yeah. The way that it's executed, I mean, the way that the story develops as, as this man is just like, you seem so curious. You've been looking for your girlfriend for three years now. Let me just explain to you what happened. And then he goes through, this is what I went through. Like, that's what he's really interested in. He's just so proud of himself for having pulled it off. It's, it, the performance is amazing. And, the, and just the way the film is put together is, is, is f- fascinating. Yeah, and speaking of the director, it's George Sluzer. And he actually, for this version, he did film an alternate ending. Boo! Which, yeah, which he obviously didn't use, but then probably picked up much mm-hmm. of that for the for the uh, American remake. But uh, we stick American to remake. the, yeah, the neutered American remake. I don't think he thinks much of Americans. That's my guess. He thinks we're <laughs> dumb wussies. That's the what he thinks. The Vanishing, the original from 1988. Take is number three on our list. And, What's oh, number two? What could be number two <laughs> from 1999? It's already showing on the screen here. Three film students vanish after traveling into a Maryland forest to film a documentary on the local Blair Witch legend, leaving only their footage behind the Blair Witch Project. Who's got the map? And I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault. Because it was my project. I am so scared. That's the thought I have every time I'm ever even near a woods. I'm going to die out here every time. And it'll happen at some point. Uh, this movie, uh, we've said this hundreds of times, this movie scared the shit out of me. This is this, this movie. I know the 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 you know what they said on the the quotes up there. Scariest movie I've ever seen. This is the scariest movie I've ever seen because it just hits exactly everything I am personally terrified by. But it also, I mean, obviously, it hit a nerve in '99 when it came out. Yeah, I was glad to see just recently. I think a, a publication. So I forget the name of it. Came out with a list, some sort of list of the greatest horror movies of mm-hmm. all time. And anyway, I, I was glad to see this movie on that list. Whatever they were talking about included it because. I think over the years it has really gotten negative baggage that I don't think it deserves. And I, I know even at the time people came out and poo-pooed it, oh, that's not scary. And, and okay, fine. We've talked many times about what scares people is very personal, so maybe this type of thing you don't find scary. But I still think if you, it's so hard to remove the cultural impact that it had and look at it today through that lens of back then. Yeah. And I, I still think it's incredible. Incredibly effective movie. Well, and, but one of the reasons that it, it uh, you know, it hit so hard when it came out is because it had that incredible, 
the very first probably ever really viral campaign, mm-hmm. uh, online campaign, and people honestly thought that these people were missing. Oh, yes, they you know? did. Uh, there had really been very few other even close to found footage real films, style films, prior to this, Cannibal Holocaust, but that really has a narrative built around it. And so the, the fact that, the, I mean, it was the most effective, I think, film campaign I've ever heard of. Uh, and we we talked to your cousins who were like, oh, no, they're really gone. Oh, yeah. We they're had... really dead. And this is really their footage. And then I yeah. thought, and you're going to go? Does that make this a snuff film? What's the <laughs> matter with you? Yeah. <laughs> Shortly after that, we were on vacation. And we had to convince my cousins that, yep. no, no, it's not really true. And so people were believing this all over the country. And, of course, now we're seeing how easily people believe things that aren't <laughs> true. Uh, maybe it shouldn't have. Uh, it's kind of a harbinger of things to come. But, uh, yeah, it was an incredible. It's a sort of viral campaign now. Marketing firms would just kill for yeah, they would. because it just swept the country and made everybody want to see this movie. But for me, uh, for me, the film lived up to the hype. Um, you know, oh, yeah. I remember I was, at night after we saw it, uh, she was scared. Shitless. I was. I really was. I, we had to go on like a like, you know, like to a Boy Scout camp, like retreat thing in the afternoon for a lunch meeting where I was working at the time. And I was just like. I have to go to the bathroom. Will 30 of you walk me to that building? Because if I see twig creatures, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> the Missing Persons of the Blair Witch Project. That is number two on our list of Missing Persons Horror from 1999. And we're up against the clock, so we got to get at it. And number one movie tonight. It's the one we're going to show tonight. Vicky is randomly abducted from a suburban street by a disturbed couple. As she observes the dynamic between her captors, she quickly realizes she must drive a wedge between them if she is to survive. The Great Hounds of Love. Yeah, ready, little diary. Your mom wouldn't let you out, so you snuck out, didn't you? She's probably not even looking for you. <laughs> you think she's prettier than me? He doesn't love you. Uses you. Let's go in there and have a little bit of fun. And we are so excited to welcome the writer director of Hounds of Love to the Fright Club podcast, calling in from Australia. We appreciate it so much. Welcome, Ben Young. Uh, Thank you very much. My uh, girlfriend is very excited because she's from Columbus, Ohio. No way! That's awesome. Yeah. She lives in Los Angeles now, but she is from Columbus. Wow. Cool. Yeah, there Um, you go. Excellent. Well, thank you for supporting the film. Oh, yeah, we love it. Yeah. Um, it's funny. We were talking about this at lunch. This is actually the third time that um, Hounds of Love has made one of our Fright Club lists. It's the first time we've shown it, but uh, we talked about it when we did a podcast on realism and horror. And then we also talked about it when we did a podcast on mothers and daughters in horror. It made that that list as well. And I think that um, the, that aspect of it, the the... Uh, maternal relationship. I mean, everything. It's a really. It, I know you know this. It's a brilliant movie. It's so incredibly well made. And I think, though, <laughs> one of the things that makes it so compelling is that sort of mother-daughter tension with the the captor, and then also with the poor mom who's finding her daughter. I just wanted to ask you, what made you decide to go that route? I remember exactly where I was standing when I had the idea, and I was in the car park of a Chinese restaurant in a suburb called Mount Lawley in Western Australia, and. I'd just been struggling with um, Vicky's character. I just, I, she was just a, a middle-class girl 
who was kind of a little bit sad at home. And I needed to find a way that she could connect more with the female captor. And so then I, I thought, well, what's something that they both could have in common? And I thought, well, she could be a daughter and she could be a mother. And so that's that that was really where where it came from. I needed I needed to find a way for those two characters to connect somehow. And um, it was just in bouncing the mother daughter thing. I mean, the performances are so amazing, especially the the three leads. But I really loved the way that it all sort of turns with Vicky and Emma Booth when it comes to you know how she finally wears her down that she just she can hear the the mother outside and she finally just gives up and i wanted actually mm-hmm. just to talk about the performances they are stunning they're just stunning and and so for all three characters i mean we've seen well, just in this list, we see five other movies that talk, you know, where there's a missing person and there's a captor and there's a captive. But the dynamic among these three is so different from any of the rest of the movies that kind of we considered for this list. And I wondered how that came about. Oh, well, look, I I, I wish that I could take the credit for it. So uh, it, it all began. I wrote the roles for um, two particular actors. Emma was one of them. And Emma said no to the role because she thought that it was too confronting. Wow. And um, the guy... Yeah, the guy who I'd asked to play a um, uh, John character, he said no as well. And so I was kind of um, very confused about how I was going to cast this thing. And then <laughs> I got a phone call from the – and she said that this actor, Stephen Curry, had read the script and really wanted into it. So you guys in America probably don't know much about Stephen Curry, but he does comedy. So I love it. And Steve and I jumped on the phone, and he very generously – so I'll audition for you. So he auditioned for me. And he uh, won the role, fair and square. And I cast him about six months before we entered principal photography. And so he and I just spent ages thinking about this this character. I did a, a long list of questions um, uh, about the character's background that I that I sent him, and uh, he sent back to me. And we bounced all of that around. And then I cast much later, but I've known her for like twenty years. We just spoke a lot about it, sent books and all of that kind of stuff. And Ashley was the last to get cast, and that was a bit um, a bit harder because she was the. By the time we, I never met. Uh, I met Ashley in the audition. I hadn't spent any time with her until she got. To, and you know, I was just doing my best to try and get her. I didn't have time to rehearse. The movie gets so intense. Was it? How emotionally grueling did it become for for the actors? Yeah, so what we did is with Ashley, particularly um, the moment where, you know, the stuff goes on with the dog in the next room, yeah. I literally ran, I, I ran the camera for 20 minutes and I just didn't say cut. I, I let a lot of the actors just cut it when they'd had enough because I said, look, I could just shoot all day. So let's just, when the scene finishes, I'm not going to say cut. No one's going to do anything. Just go back to where you were and just start it again and just keep doing it until you're happy and then stop. And then if I've got a note, then we'll go back and we'll do it again. And so that's how we did it. So I didn't, I just always think that there's so every time you say cut or I say cut 99% of the time, it's because you have a note for performance, but for some reason, crew members always run in and start redoing makeup and lights Mm. get moved around. And it's just, it slows everything down and gets the actors, I think out of the headspace they need to be in. So I just tried to minimize that by just rolling the camera the whole time. Mm -hmm. So crew members couldn't get in there and interrupt. Well, one of the other things that, that struck me about the movie, especially for a, a first-time director, was how assured it was in the visual storytelling. I mean, right away for me, the shots of the swing, the swings, and then the shots, oh. the overhead shots of the airplanes, yeah. spoke so much to me in the story. 
Um, and oh, thank you. I wondered how you approached when it was best to do visual storytelling as uh, as opposed to dialogue. That's a good question. I've got a funny story about the planes. So um, a lot of that, uh, originally it came from bad luck. For some reason, almost every location that we settled on seemed to be right underneath the flight path. No one had <laughs> ever settled on that. So we wasted so much time having go, nope, sorry, a plane is coming. And so every time a plane came, I just say to the DP, just film the plane, just do it. So we're not standing around here doing nothing. And it wasn't actually until we got into the edit suite that it was like, oh, we got all these planes. Yeah. They're kind of a great, a, a great metaphor for escaping, you know? Like, yes. Let's just stick them in there whenever we can. And so um, that's, that's where they came from, um, which, uh, you know, I guess maybe I should be embarrassed to admit, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> and I guess, um, so I wrote the film as well. And I, when I write, I break everything into eight sequences and, um, pose so like kind of eight short films within the one big one and they will come together to make the the feature film and i pose a question at the beginning of every one of those sequences and try and answer it by the end and it's usually just a, a yes no answer but whatever answer that is spins us into the next sequence and so because i wrote the film i was able to um work out uh, in eight sequences i shot it in eight sequences as well so uh, every sequence is visually a little bit different and I used, uh, just to give the audience a little bit of a break between each sequence, that's when I knew that I was going to go into my visual stuff. So, for example, obviously, the first sequence ends when she is abducted, you know? So um, then the visual style shifted from, from there. So the first sequence, the beginning of the film, their life is uninterrupted, everything's calm. So I shot it on fairly wide lenses because they're not very dramatic, and I always kept the camera on sticks or a dolly. And it was only when she left the house, um, ran away from her mum's, that um, you know the, her world had taken a little bit of a, a stir up. So I, I went to a much looser approach, and so that was that was really where I came up with the visual style, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sort of in keeping with that, the way that you use music was really inspired. I thought. T- tell us a little about that. That's really interesting. The um, director, the producer of the film. Um, said to me when we were casting, he said, all right, who's the star of this movie? And I said, well, there is no star because there's no Australian movie stars who, you know, we can afford who are going to make anybody go and watch this thing. So the star of the movie has to be the music. And so, like, uh, we ended up, I think, we, we spent about 20% of the entire budget on, on music, which I think was a good idea because one of the first movies that I ever watched that made me think I want to be a filmmaker was... Um, was Pulp Fiction, and mm-hmm. even when I was 12 or something at the time that that came out, I uh, I was just absolutely blown away by the score, and I went and bought, I mean, well, by the, the music, I went out and bought the music. So for me, the music in a film has always been so important um, to whether or not I engage with it. So, uh, yeah, it was something I thought about a lot going into it. And the fun thing was that, I mean, the, the obvious choice would have been, because it's, fil- it's set in the 80s to popularise, uh, to uh, you know, fill the movie with uh, 80s music, but I thought, well, people don't necessarily listen to music of the time. They listen to music of their time. Right. Mm-hmm. So these characters would be listening to stuff from the 50s and 60s. So um, that's, uh, yeah, so that, that was really fun to be able to look at all of that older stuff. 
Yeah, and that's a great sequence, too, especially when you take a song like that, like Nights in White Satin, that is so, it's been heard a billion times, and to give it yeah. such a, an, an emotional, a new, a new way to look at it, I, I really love that part as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It, it's, it's funny, when, when you look up, if you just Google uh, the movie, uh, you don't yeah. always get it described as a horror movie, which right. I thought was interesting. Yeah, do you see it as a horror film? No, I never thought I was making a horror film. When I pitched it, I was pitching it as a psychological drama. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I was amazed to see that it, it ended up uh, getting marketed as a horror film and lots of horror people kind of, or fans, kind of got into it because I, I didn't think that it would really, I didn't think it was a horror film because it's not really very violent. It feels like it is, yeah. but there's, there's hardly any violence in the whole film. Um, so I didn't think that horror fans would, really dig it. And it's interesting, just um, in reading some user reviews, um, it seems that people either really love it or really hate it. And a lot of people, I think, who kind of go in there expecting a horror film are disappointed because it's kind of a slow burn. So, um, yeah, so I, I never saw it as a horror film. And I, I, don't, I, I may have made it differently if I, if I had. Uh, it's funny, one of the um, one of the other lists that this, uh, your film was on, we did Realism and Horror, and the, the film that we showed at that time for that podcast was the snowtown murders another oh, australian I love that movie <laughs> such a great movie um and yep. and th- i think that this had some i think thematic similarities so like it felt like a true crime film mm-hmm. um and yep. actually when, when we were pre- prepping for this i looked i thought uh, in my head i'm like is it is it not but it's not it's entirely uh fictional right yep yep it's based on so there's uh like there is a, an unfortunate phenomenon of, of couples throughout history abducting and murdering young young people. And um, so it, the concept is real, but the dynamics and the characters and everything that happens within the movie is fake. Plus, it just it just feeds into that feeling that we Americans have that Australia is out to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, so it, it's, it's also part of it is when you're trying to make a movie, like obviously... You know, I, I directed a lot of stuff before that film, just never a movie, like tons of commercials and music videos, and I think I've made eight short films or something like that. So I directed a lot, but making that step into um, making a, a feature film is, is big, and no one, everyone wants to do it, so it's very difficult for, for you to convince anybody to give you a go. And um, so it, it seemed like writing something that was very contained in one or minimum locations is was a was a good idea, and I think that you know thrillers slash horrors often require uh, a sense of being trapped somewhere, and so they you know by the nature of what they are have less locations than bigger films, and so I think part of it is most people in Australia we have no money to make movies, so <laughs> um, so we write stuff which is uh, limited in the amount of locations because we've got a better chance of being able to make it. I mean, speaking of that, what what do you have coming up next? I'm, I'm attached to a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I've, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the nature of the game is um, a lot of stuff falls over. I had a TV show with Netflix last year that fell over at the last minute. I had another movie that fell over at the last minute. But right now I am, uh, I am attached to, I'm uh, casting, in fact, two different American films, um, both kind of in the vein of Hounds of Love. Um, and I'm attached to a, an Australian psychological thriller, I'm attached to a TV show in London, hmm. um, and, and I'm writing a couple of my own um, 
uh, yeah, I'm attached to a, a very exciting remake of a of a horror thriller film with a big studio, which I better not say. Um, but, 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 but I will say that they're notorious for making very fun horror movies. So uh, right. you know, I'll leave it at that. And um, so uh, yeah, that is the one that is kind of at the forefront at the moment. So I'm just doing a draft of that right now, as well as developing another one of my own kind of uh, psychological drama scripts, which is half set in the States and half set in Australia. Nice. All right. Well, mm. you, you, you're also, you've already told us you're attached to a woman from here in Columbus, Ohio. So if you want to come yes. back with her to visit family, um, we, we'd love to see you drop by. <laughs> hey, I'd, I'd love that. I've never actually been to Columbus, but it's weird because I'm connected to it. This thing that I'm writing at the moment is set in Columbus as well. Oh. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's the city keeps calling me. Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Especially <laughs> right now. That's right. We have a bad yeah. connection, but we keep trying. <laughs> I think it's just about time we get back in there and watch your movie. <laughs> One hour and 45 minutes later. Okay, the movie just ended. Let's get a couple reactions. Brandon, what do you think? I think the tone of the movie really reminds me of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. And I, I think he was right that the, there there is no humor really whatsoever through the movie. It's just so bleak. Mm-hmm. And I actually stood in the aisle for about 15 minutes because I wanted to duck out during the dog scene. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty numb to a lot of things in movies, but that dog scene is rough. It's, it's funny because George has said that before, that there are a whole website set up for people who want to know before they go see a horror film if anything happens to the dog. They just want to know. Like, I need to know before I go away. Yeah. Kill all the humans <laughs> that you want to. Richard? Uh, the Australian movies have a great natural instrument with the didgeridoo that had some great haunting music in dead, it. Dead, dead. I have a hunch that the bone that the dog was chewing was not a ham bone. No, might have been Gabby. Damn it, this is a movie about uh, kidnapping and assault, and the movie assaulted you. Well, good stuff. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks everybody, for coming, for coming. We'll be right back here next month to show The Last Circus. And keep in mind, we always love to talk horror movies on social media. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Fright Club Pod, and on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And, of course, the main website where you can not only find this finished Fright Club podcast, in just a few days, but also our other podcast, The Screening Room, and all of our other written movie reviews, and that is madwolf.com. So keep in touch if you can. Until then, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Hi, this is Ben Young, director of Hounds of Love. Stay frightful, my friends.